And we're looking at the grand narrative of the Bible. It's called This Is My Story. And the reason it's called This Is My Story is because this is my story. And it's your story uh, that we live by. Uh, every one of us is a storyteller. You're a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. We tell stories every single day because it helps us to get the sense of our lives. We tell stories at the dinner table. We tell stories around the campfire. We tell stories uh, at the water cooler. And it began at a very early age uh, because telling stories is as basic for us as eating food. But while food gives us life, it's the stories that we tell that give meaning to our lives and to the experiences that we have. We use stories to answer the great existential questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What does it mean to be human? Harvey Cox is a great theologian uh, at Harvard Divinity School, and he put it like this. He says, every human being has an innate need to hear and to tell stories and to have a story to live by. Think about that for a moment. We have a need to hear and to tell stories like we do every single day. Our, our tiniest little toddlers come home and they tell us stories as well. But we all need a big story uh, to, to make sense of all the little stories, the grand meta-narrative uh, that guides our understanding of our lives. The Bible is a remarkable book. It is meant to be that grand meta-narrative for us. If you open the Bible at random, you can come across poetry, proverbs, history, love songs, architectural details, or even a national code. And this collection of literature, uh, written by numerous people throughout um, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, still miraculously tells one story. And it has all of the qualities of a good story. It has a setting, it has a beginning, it has conflict, it has a, it has a climax, and then it has a, a resolution. And we are meant to find ourselves within, our, within this story, and this Great big story is meant to make sense of all of our lives. And so over the next several weeks, over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the narrative qualities of this story. And, and it begins in Genesis 1 with the story of creation. Am I, am I not worth kind of flipping out a little bit? Okay. All right. Here we go. We're going to use this for now. Um, and so the, the Bible tells one consistent story. And so today we begin in Genesis 1, and there are two creation stories uh, in the Bible. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation in one way, and then Genesis chapter 2 tells the story of creation in another way. And Genesis 2 is also connected to Genesis 3, which is the fall, and we're going to look at that next week, because that's where conflict enters into the story. But instead of looking at both of the creation we're really going to just focus on Genesis 1 today and then point to Genesis 2 and 3 for next week as we look at the fall. So listen to the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1. These are selected verses from the creation story, and then I'm going to talk through it and kind of walk through it a little bit. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, a, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God 
God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created humankind in the image, in the image of God, and created them the male and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's God. In the ancient Near East, there was this thing, there's this, this idea called uh, a king's garden. And uh, if you were a king in the ancient Near East, you lived in desert area, most likely, without very much water. And one of the ways to show uh, to show a great sign of your wealth and your accomplishments was to have a, a good, great big garden uh, in your grounds, next to your palace. It was a sign of your, your wealth to have a rich, lush garden. In Persian, the, the word that uh, was kind of used to describe the king's garden was paradiso. And that's where we get our word for paradise. And so paradise was a way of literally talking about the king's garden in the ancient Near East. In the king's garden, the king would have water features built and waterfalls, and there would be servants who would pump the water to, to put on display these wonderful waterfalls. It would look kind of like some of the images that we saw uh, from Craig and Abby Hall in, in, in Indonesia, but actually brought into the desert build waterfalls. There were exotic plants and trees and vines all over the place and different tiers and layers. King Solomon had, a, had one of these um, great big gardens. Uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had one of these great big gardens at his palace. And not only that, but in addition to the, the plants and, and uh, the trees and the vines and the waterfalls and the servants who would pump those waterfalls, there would also be um, great animals that they would bring in. So some kings, they would kind of trade animals from different regions. And so you bring in all of these different kinds of exotic animals to roam around in the, in the king's garden there, and obviously in a contained manner. And so it was kind of like a, but they would kind of be like a, a menagerie or an arboretum, kind of all together at the same time. Um, I know that there are some gardens here in, in Come and enjoy paradise. 
daughter. And so the Bible uh, story actually begins with the king of the universe creating his own garden. And that garden was created on the third planet from the sun, right here where we live. And we're kind of looking at the creation account, the beginning of human history, the beginning of creation, as far as we know it to be. And God created all of these beautiful things, the water, So that's kind of the story in its essence, and we're going to look at the story today, uh, the first story, and what it teaches us, and there are really three questions that the creation story in Genesis 1 is meant to answer, and these questions are, one, where did we come from? They're very simple questions, they're, they're not on the slides, you can just listen. Where did we come from? Why are we here? How shall we live? Where did we come from? Why are we here? How shall we live? These are the questions that the creation story is meant to answer. And the entire Bible that is built on the foundation of this one story. And so it's a really, really, really important story for us to know uh, because it helps us to understand what it means to be human. And so I want to begin by recognizing that the creation story in the Bible in Genesis 1 was never meant to be understood or read as a science lecture. And this is really important because there are some Christians who tend to think that Genesis 1 was written as a science lecture, that it's meant to tell us how exactly God created everything and how long it took and when this took place. And in fact, they'll, they'll because they read the Bible literally, they'll say that it took place in seven literal days, and then they'll add up all of the genealogies in, in Genesis, and they'll say that it took place uh, around 4004 BC, not around, they actually get very specific, in October, of 4004 BC, and it's quite amazing that they uh, could come with that kind of specificity. Um, and by virtue of how they read the Bible, everything was created in seven literal days, and it was created in the order in which everything was created in the book of Genesis. Now, if you read the Bible that way, you come really quickly come up with a problem of contradiction, because the second creation account, the order of creation, gets kind of rearranged. And the order of creation in the second account is very different from the order of creation in the first account. And what we're meant to do is we're meant to hold these two together. They're meant to complement one another. It's held in tension. And they're not meant to be read as a science lecture. Genesis wasn't written like a science lecture. It, was, it doesn't read like a science lecture. And we're not supposed to read it that way. Instead, it's written in poetry. Genesis 1 is Poetry. It's written in poetry, and this poetry is a liturgy, and the liturgy is a creed, and this creed is help is meant to help us to understand the fundamental truths of why we're here, but it's not trying to tell us the how of creation. And I say that to say that this book is a book of faith, and it's a story of poetry that is meant to inspire our faith our relationship with God. And so we could say it like this. Genesis 1 was not to tell us the how of creation, but to tell us the who of creation and the why of creation. And so 
So if we, if we read it otherwise, it really is an adventure in missing the forest. So I want to mention one more thing about how people can be confused with the story. Maybe you've heard this if you've had a class uh, with the Jew and comparative religions or in the history of religion, that there were other creation stories in the ancient Near East that were very known and very common. And they have some similarities with the Genesis accounts. They were pagan stories, but they have some similarities with our creation accounts. And some of those older uh, than the Genesis, some of those are even older than the Genesis accounts, at least the written forms of them. And so you can take a look at this uh, slide here. This is what we call the Atrahasis tablet. It was written somewhere in the 1600, 1620, 1640 BC. It was found more recently in Iraq, which is where Babylon was at the time that it was written. Tells one of these creation stories in, in Babylon, the Atrahasis epic. It's a Sumerian epic, uh, and, uh, and the creation account has some interesting parallels with our creation account in Genesis. Some of you have heard about the epic of Gilgamesh in your college classes, and then of course we have the Enigma Elish, which is a Babylonian creation account, and the Egyptians, of course, have their own creation stories. And so some people might say, look, your Bible. Your creation, your Bible just is just like filled with myths, like all of the other creation myths of the ancient Near East. And they do have a, a little bit of a point there in saying that other cultures have stories of creation too. And many of them even have a flood story, kind of like we have a flood story in Genesis 6 through 9. But it shouldn't surprise us that there would be other creation stories because every civilization throughout human history has been asking themselves the same question. Where did we come from? Why are we here? How did we get here? What is the point of all of this? What does it mean to be human? And so they're asking the same things. And the Israelites were living among these cultures growing up. And they, they knew, they grew up in Egypt. They knew the Egyptian stories of creation. And then they would make their way into Canaan, where they would encounter people who adopted the Akkadian stories of creation. Then they would be even taken into Babylon in exile, where they would hear the Babylonian stories of creation. And whether you think that that, uh, that Genesis was written by, by, by Moses um, or at, at a later date or at an earlier date or written by the Israelites uh, in, in uh, exile at a much later date, which is what I tend to most scholars don't think that Moses uh, wrote, wrote uh, the Pentateuch anymore, but traditionally he was held there. And regardless, many of these stories were written even before our And so these things were commonly known and commonly shared, and so it doesn't surprise us that there are some common elements. But what's really interesting to me is in reading these stories is how the biblical story is different from the other creation of the ancient Near East. And that's what I'm really interested in. And so I want to kind of just kind of go through some of those differences. Here you can take a look at this next slide. There's a couple of things that we learned that are different. In creation, in the other creation accounts of the ancient Near East, there were multiple gods who created the universe. And so multiple gods, they were pantheistic uh, religions, and so they, and multiple gods came together, usually in conflict or war, and out of that was born creation. In the Bible, we believe that there was one God uh, who created the universe, uh, and so we have one God who created the universe in the Bible. In the other creation accounts, 
creation was born of conflict and war. And so you have, like in the Atahasis epic, you have this kind of hierarchical structure of gods. And so you have kind of the main gods who, um, who are in charge of all of the lesser gods. And the lesser gods are meant to serve as kind of like slaves to, to the higher gods. And what happens is, is in, in the epic is that the lesser gods revolt and they try to like kind of take out the higher gods and they and they kill one god and, and the blood that is spilled, they use the blood that is spilled and they mix it with the dirt to form uh, human beings. And so human beings are born in the universe that is created out of conflict and war. The Bible's creation accounts, creation is born out of love and beauty, God's love and creative imagination, uh, God brings forth creation. In other creation accounts, these human beings are then created to be slaves to the gods. So they feed the gods while the gods rest. But in the creation account, humanity, humankind, is created to be not slaves of the gods, but <coughs> objects of God's love. Recipients of God's love. In other creation accounts, only the king would be created in the image of God. And so that's where we get kind of the idea of the divine right of kings. And so the king is, is made in the image of God and is then given the, the power to rule over the rest of creation. But I love that in the Bible, every single person from the least greatest is made in the image of God. And this is where we get our basis for human rights in the world is right here in this text. All human beings made in the image of God. So let's take a look at the creation account in Genesis 1 together. If you're watching on the screen at home, you can read aloud together Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens so here's the big, first big idea, beginning in Genesis 1-1, that before anything was, God was. Uh, sometimes I've, I've had kids uh, from Sunday school have come up to me from time to time and have asked me this question. Pastor Chris, um, if God made everybody, then who made God? And you know my answer to that? Go ask your parents. <laughs> because we don't know. Um, as far back as we go in, in the biblical story uh, is before anything was, God was. And, and some people might say, well, you Christians, you know, you don't have any answers. You know, you don't even know. I mean, that, that's what you want. Give us any answers. And it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. You know, um, I was reading this story by uh, Stephen Hawking. I mean, Stephen Hawking is a popular cosmologist. And, and he was talking about how universe was created, as, as, as you probably know, the universe clearly had a beginning, he said, and he said not everyone believes it, but most of the science believe it, that it was created through the Big Bang, or that it was not created, but that it came to be through the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, actually, Hawking said it was probably more like 15 billion years ago, and then he's asked the question, well, what happened before the Big Bang? And you know what his answer was? Go ask your parents. <laughs> Uh, he essentially said, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know, and we'll never be able to know. That's as far back as we know. So it's interesting that 
science and Genesis 1 both agree that there was a beginning in time and that there was something before that beginning, but we have no way of knowing what it was. But at least for Christians, we know that there will come a day when we get to heaven and we can ask God <coughs> ourselves and hopefully we can have a, a little bit of a better understanding. So now I want to remind you of the rhythm and the poetry of Genesis 1 3, and you'll find that this is a refrain throughout uh, Genesis 1 that really helps us to understand the genre of poetry of Genesis 1. It's really important because of there's so many different genres in the Bible that we understand the genre first because uh, genre often determines interpretation. And so when you understand the genre of a text, you can read it a lot more faithfully. So now here, listen to some of the poetry or the refrain that happens throughout this, um, this poem that is Genesis 1. Verses 3 and 4, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So three things you'll notice in this, in this refrain. First, God speaks everything into existence in the first creation account. In the second creation account, God breathes. And but in the first creation account, God speaks everything into existence. Oh, and by the way, um, in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the chaos. God, the Father, speaks, and the Word is known, as we know, as, as the Christ, or Jesus. And so we get a glimpse of the Trinity, even in this first account of creation in Genesis 1. So God speaks, and then stuff happens, right? And so somehow matter is kind of organized into what God is commanding. Mouse and Fantasia with his lawn, like <laughs> making creation kind of like moving around it into existence. And then God says, He looks at it and He says, It is good. So God speaks, stuff happens, and God looks at it and says, It is good. And the word for good there in Hebrew is the word tov. And, and you know the word tov because you've heard it when you've heard the word mazel tov. Uh, and it means good, but it means more than good, it means great. It means more than great, it means wonderful, it means beautiful, and it can mean all of those things and more together. God looks at his creation, at what he has made, and he says, it is good, it is beautiful, it is wonderful, it's amazing. And each day when God creates, he speaks, and things come into existence, into being, and then he looks at his work at the end of the day, The seven days of creation are not meant to be understood as seven 24-hour periods. They're meant to be understood as just seven seasons or seven, um, seven days of God's time, which is outside of time. So again, we, can't, we, we, we need to unlearn the scientific approach of reading Genesis 1. So here's what God creates. You can see this um, image here of, of this painting that has sort of the seven days of creation. On day one, you can see the Hebrew letters kind of um, uh, signaling the speaking of God creation into existence. And God creates light, and he separates the light from the darkness to have day and night on day one. Then day two, let there be an atmosphere, God says. Let there be a dome in the sky. So God creates an atmosphere on day two. And then on day three, God creates the land, dry land, and the 
oceans, plants, trees, vegetation. And then on day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Oh, and by the way, here's the question. If God created the sun and the moon and the stars on day four, then what was the source of light on day one? God created light to separate from the darkness on day one, but he didn't create the sun and the moon and the stars until day four. So what sourced the light on day one? The answer is, it's poetry. <laughs> you can't read it like poetry. Uh, and so on day four, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. On day five, God created the fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, anthropods, uh, cattle, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. On day six, uh, God created human beings in his image and said that it was very good. We'll get to that in a minute. And on day seven, God finished his work and he rested. So in Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I love that. And I think about the cosmos. You know, it is, it is beautiful. Um, I love getting the opportunity to look at the stars in the night sky. Um, what is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen? Take a moment and you can tell the person next to you if there's someone next to you. Um, or you can just think about it. What are the most beautiful things that you've ever seen? Now, aside from my, the, uh, the faces of my family members, uh, a couple of years ago, I took our daughter Hannah to Kenya, and we had an opportunity to go on a safari, and we were in a big jeep, and I remember we made our way around this bend, and we made around this bend, and valley opened up and you could see all of these different animals, the wildebeest, buffalo, some of the more exotic ones were really more harder to find. Um, but I, I looked at and I saw all of that. I started to weep, like totally surprised. I never thought I would ever weep at the sight of an animal. Uh, and, but I was overwhelmed by the beauty uh, of such a sight. Um, and it was amazing. And so this is the creation and here are a few things that I, that I want you to take away from the story, big ideas from Genesis 1. First, is that everything owes its existence to God. Everything owes its existence to God. God is behind all of creation. Second, the garden and everything in it at its inception was good and beautiful, reflecting God's beauty and goodness. So, you know, we Theologians talk a lot about uh, about original sin, and we're going to look at that next week because this is where conflict enters into the story at the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve disobey God, and and we have this understanding of original sin. But before there was original sin, there was the original blessing, which is the creation. And so before there was sin, God has created us good and beautiful. And so, number three, our lives and all of creation belong to God the Creator and are a gift from God. And so that kind of leads us to a fundamental posture or outlook on life. Genesis 1 calls us to a fundamental posture that is recognizing that everything good and beautiful in creation, including your life and breath and the friends that you have and the things that you enjoy 
things that give you uh, gifts of life and joy and love and delight, and all of this comes from God, then what is the fundamental posture? What is the appropriate response to God's creation as we just read Genesis chapter 1? What's the just and proper response? The answer, of course, is gratitude. We are, we are meant to live lives of gratitude. The, the creation account is meant to invoke in us a gratitude for all of life. Gratitude is foundational, actually, for the life that we all desire. We all want to live a life that's well-lived and joyful and connected to God and to others in healthy ways. So gratitude, when we practice it, it opens the heart and it, and it shapes the mind into a positive perspective. It's good for our health. Scientists and, and medical and health professionals will tell you that practicing gratitude on a daily basis is one of the best things your mental health. Why? Because God intended for us to live lives of gratitude. God also intended for us to have life. And as Jesus says, life in abundance. So as we practice gratitude, we, we experience the life that God intended for us. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. For all circumstances and um, that, that seems hyperbolic, except that when you look at Paul's life and the suffering that he endured in places where he gave thanks, you think, well, Paul's crazy. But no, actually, um, gratitude has nothing to do with our circumstances. We all know, and, and I can think in my life, I know that some of the most grateful people I know are people who experience some of the greatest suffering um, imagined. About a friend named Patrick Steele who has recently gone to be with the Lord after 20 years of living in uh, as a quadriplegic after, mm -hmm. after an accident in Westmont. And his life of joy and gratitude during those 20 years post accident is, is shocking to me. But there are so many stories of people who suffer greatly and yet they're some of the most grateful people that you know. And then, of course, there are, there are others who relatively easy or privileged lives who tend to be some of the grumpiest people that we know. And so all that is to say is that our, our circumstances have very little to do with our posture of gratitude. Um, it's about paying attention to the blessings and grace in our lives. Gratitude is not always easy to feel, but it is very easy to practice. If I were to give a challenge for us, a challenge for us. I, I would like to challenge us for this one week and for the rest of your lives to give uh, thanks to God five times a day. It's very, very easy. Five times a day. Try to just do that every day for a week. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning, thank you, God, for the gift of you. Maybe, maybe you remember when you brush your teeth, put a little note on your mirror that reminds you. Then you sit down for breakfast in your heart or verbally. God, thank you for this breakfast. It was good to be with you and at lunch. And if you're in public, that's okay. Just close your eyes, bow your head, say a little prayer to yourself, uh, or pray with those who are with you. It doesn't really matter. Um, and then before dinner, and then before you go to bed. Very simple. Five times a day, it takes a few seconds, maybe a total of 30 seconds of giving thanks throughout the day, and it will fundamentally, over time, shape our posture 
Gratitude is not always easy to feel, but it is very simple to practice. Um, here's how Denzel Washington put it. Uh, he said this, I pray that you all put your shoes way under the bed at night so that you got to get on your knees in the morning and find them. And while you're down there, thank God for grace <coughs> So now I want to take you to another part briefly uh, in the text. We read these words in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God created them male and female he created them. This is different than what we see in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 have kind of a little bit more of a pessimistic view of creation. Uh, and so Genesis 2, God sees that uh, the man is alone and that it's not good, and so he creates a, a helper, which is Eve, and we'll look at that briefly next week. But here in Genesis 1, we see that God creates man and woman at the same time. These two stories are meant to complement one another, but I love this picture, not a woman who is subordinate to a man, but God makes man and woman at the same time, and they both share the dignity of being created in God's image. It doesn't say that in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 1 it does. It says that they're created in the image of God. What does that mean, created in the image of God? Well, it means that, primarily, it means that human beings are meant to the heart and character of God in the world. And in John's Gospel, it says that God is love. First John, God is love. And, and so that means that we are created to love, to give, and to receive love, which is another way of saying that we are uniquely created with a moral compass, with the ability to make moral decisions. You might know that, that our family, we have a young German shepherd mix named Roxy, and uh, whenever, whenever we leave the house, Roxy cries, and she gets really sad because she's a shepherd, and she thinks that one of her sheep are getting away to keep them close. One thing is clear to us, though. Roxy never thinks about the morality of her choices. On her best days, she does what she's trained to do, which isn't very much, of course, but never because she believed that not eating the off the table was a moral choice. <laughs> we think, we believe, we know that Roxy loves us very, very much. But if someone were to show up at the front door with a hot dog, she would chase that person for miles until she could get it. Her only mission in life is to eat and to sleep and to uh, cuddle up with the kids and maybe, hopefully, someday to catch a squirrel. She never once <clears throat> if it was morally right for her to have so many chew toys while the dogs in India have none. <laughs> and that's because he's a God. Human beings, by contrast, we have been given souls that are restless about the morality of our choices. And nothing, of course, is more moral than choosing and committing our lives making the world a better place. It calls for the response to the most important
our bodies? How do we use our bodies? Are we taking care of the garden in which we find ourselves? Or are we going to leave it better than we found it? The text says that we are given, humans are given dominion over all of the earth, over all creation, the animals and the plants, the seas and forests, deserts and mountains and valleys, that we are responsible. We are essentially to be the groundskeepers of God's garden. And some have believed that dominion meant that we can do whatever we want with it. We can, we can exploit it, we can throw garbage on it, we can burn it down, we can use it for our own economic indulgences. But, but that is not what dominion meant in the scriptures. We are meant to be caregivers, stewards of God's garden. Robert Baden Powell, who's the founder of the Boy Scouts, which I think is appropriate perhaps for Labor Day, he put it like this. Leave the world a little better than you found it. Leave the world a little better than you found it. As Christians, that is what Labor Day is meant to be for us. Um, our commitment to work, our, our secular work, is, is part of our caring for God's garden. One last point, and that is what happens at the very end story. We get to Genesis 2, 1 through 4, and it's the seventh day of creation. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. In all the other creation stories, the gods get to rest. But they get to rest. Um, they get to rest, sort of like eternally, and that's why human beings were made so that they could bring their dreams to the gods, so that the gods could rest. And if they upset the gods, the gods would break out and would make their life difficult. But in the creation story, it implies that God went back to work on the eighth day, and Jesus says that God is always working. He's working in and through you to sustain you, to provide for you, to care for you. He's managing all of the cosmos, guiding and directing, leading, encouraging, providing, and sustaining us. God is always at work. But God did rest on the seventh day. Why? Is, is God such that he needed a break? Why did God rest on the seventh day? What's interesting is that he did this to establish a rhythm all of creation. And so he hallows the Sabbath day, which means that he sets it apart as a day for holiness, as his day. He claims this day for you and for me. I give you six days of work, but on the seventh, I ask you to rest because you need it for your soul, because I built it into the rhythm of creation. And the Sabbath day is, is meant to remind us that we are not the ones who sustain the earth, that we are, we are not Lord of all, but that there is a God who sustains us even when we fail. And this is actually meant to be like the best thing for our blood pressure, you know, to, to, to be able to take some time to rest and acknowledge that life will still come forth. This isn't found in any of the other creation stories, not just you and your servant, Animals and, and all of creation is meant to take a rest on the Sabbath day. My Jewish friends, um, the, the wonderful uh, 
Hasidic rabbi friend in California and his congregation, and obviously they take this day very, very seriously. And, and they don't they don't do any social media on Sunday, on Saturday. Saturday is their Sabbath, because that was the Sabbath day. Jesus was resurrected on the third day on Sunday, and so we as Christians celebrate Sabbath uh, on Sunday, but we're not very good at it. You know, we and the church has essentially kind of failed at honoring the Sabbath throughout history. We're, we're much better at our Protestant work ethic than we are at honoring the Sabbath. In fact, I, I think we could learn a whole lot from, uh, from our, our neighbors, our LDS brothers and sisters uh, around us and how they practice Sabbath. They have a lot to teach us in this area. One of the things that drew Devin and I to in this area was the fact that there was no soccer on Sundays. So unlike everywhere else in the United States and where we came from, now we don't have to divide church and soccer on Sunday where kids can come to church. And that's thanks to our LDS neighbors. Uh, and so we, we can learn from other faith traditions. Our, 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 even our Muslim brothers and sisters practice Ramadan. They really understand this. this why, why, do, why do all of these other religious practices as well? Because it's built into creation. God has built into for us to rest and, and we have built that into the whole rhythm and it is in that rest that we, do, that we then remember that God is the creator and that then brings us back to our posture of gratitude and so think about the rhythm of creation in this way think about the turning of the seasons winter, spring, summer, fall winter, spring, summer, fall praise God from all blessings flow winter, spring, summer, fall God has all doxology, rest and give thanks on Sunday. So what if you just said the rest of the day today I'm going to do is no social media. Now, if you were to do that right now, then you probably never watch us. <laughs> but you get the idea. Um, and so, anyway, uh, we need to keep tending Sabbath. It's very important. I think on a Labor Day, we might need to think about that. Take some time So here are four very quick points that I want you to get from today's sermon. One, creation account is not a science lecture. It is poetry. It's meant to be read like poetry. And the beauty of it, it's meant to inspire our hearts to faith in God. Number two, the creation story should lead us to a fundamental posture of gratitude. Number three, your mission in life is to reflect the image of God to other people and to care for God's world. And number four, God uh, calls us to a Sabbath rest. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us and for all of creation. We thank you that you created us out of love. And we thank you that this is our story, that we can claim that. That at the core of who we are is not the result of gods somewhere fighting with one another and out of anger and war we come into existence. Nor is our story that we are simply matter just here by chance that just sort of happened out of nothing. But we know, God, that, that we are beloved and that that is our core identity because you made us. You made all of the world and all of creation beautiful and you looked upon us and said not only is it good, but it is very good. And so help us to live out of that core identity by giving thanks to you and by serving you, by caring for you. Yeah.